In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So, we've reached, sort of in Mark's gospel, the, um, sort of the climax, or at least the turning point. Everything at this point has sort of been like going up to the mountain, almost like next chapter, which is the actual Mount of Transfiguration. But in this way, we've, we've moved to who the Messiah is, everything that's been happening, the teachings of Jesus, the, the miracles, the actions, the signs that have been given have, have led up to this time, this confession of Peter. And uh, it's important, actually, to, to look at the, the story right before, um, which is often connected because in our Bibles we have nifty little paragraphs with little headings, and so it looks like a whole another thing. But in reality, the, the story of the, the blind man um, parallels the first part of our passage today. So I'm just going to read it quickly. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? And he looked up. And said, I see people and they look like trees walking around. And once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes Then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. And from here, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And now these passages really sort of parallel one another in, in that um, the, part, the blind have their eyes open. Right. And the disciples um, in this confession of Christ is sort of sort of a similar thing. We've got. The blind man being led out of the village um, in order for Jesus to do this act. He touches him twice. And first they sort of see like shadows, um, like trees walking around. And then he can see and his eyes open and Jesus tells him not to say anything. And, and the same is true with the disciples. He takes them out to Caesarea Philippi, says, who do you say that I am? And they, Or who do people say that I am? And they have this sort of strange vision of who he is, maybe John the Baptist, maybe one of the Elijah, maybe one of the prophets, sort of like shadow of who he is. And then when Jesus addressed them again, but who you say that I am? We see finally all the things that have been happening in this passage up to this point where the disciples are struggling right before this. It's um, when Jesus says, watch out for the yeast of the, of the Pharisees and of Herod. They said, maybe it's because we forgot bread. And Jesus says, Oh, my golly. Are you kidding me? Have I not just fed the 5,000 and the 4,000? You don't think I can get bread out of nothing? Um, and, you know, that's right before this passage. And so finally now with this confession of Peter speaking for all, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. And, and it's, no, it's no wonder that they're in, in Caesarea Philippi. Because Caesarea Philippi isn't like just down the way. It's not like 
and they were leaving, you know, Tacoa and headed to, you know, Mount Airy or they're heading to, you know, Livonia. It's like they're leaving, they're leaving Tacoa and went to Atlanta. You know, it's like, it's a long way. It's a long way even now. It's an hour or two by car now um, to get from Galilee to Caesarea Philippi. But in Caesarea Philippi, there was a new temple that was erected there to a new God. Caesar has become the new God um, in the Roman Empire, where Caesar is not just the ruler, but Caesar is is God. And so, you know, Jesus brings his disciples to this place um, to introduce what it is that the Messiah is bringing forth into the world. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one. And, and the Messiah doesn't mean what we know now about Jesus. We, we don't all of a sudden think that he's, nobody there thinks he's divine yet or the son of God in that way. That comes, that comes later on. But the Messiah is really, he's, there, there's three main things that the Messiah has come to do, right? He's come to um, cleanse the temple or to restore the temple back to its fullness. He's come to defeat the, the enemies of God's people and come to restore justice and bring forth healing and life and liberty to the, to the world. And now how that gets played out is, is sort of up for interpretation. Everybody has their own way of thinking about what happens. It's not unlike doctrines that we have today. What happens in communion? Ask 10 priests. You'll get 10 answers, probably, right? I mean, you know, there's, there's various things, but, but what's important is what it is, right? It's sort of, it's still representative of the body and blood of Jesus in the Eucharist. What is the Messiah? He's these three things. How does this come about? And so now we, we move to that next, that next phase, right? The eyes of the disciples are opened. They're no longer blind. They see Jesus the Messiah. In some ways, this is like, this is like school, right? When you learn, when you learn math or you learn science or you learn something where you get to a point where it's like, okay, now you've mastered this concept. And now we can teach this other concept. Like you can't, you can't really start, start teaching algebra until you actually know your, all of your mathematical addition, subtraction, multiplication facts, right? It's so now we've moved on. Jesus begins to teach them what it is to be the Messiah. The Messiah is going to be rejected and suffer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he's going to be killed after three days, rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. And Peter takes him aside and says, wait, no, you for, this isn't how this works, right? This is, this is not what the Messiah is coming to do. The Messiah is coming to reign um, in glory. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, which is not um, a metaphor, right? This is, this is Jesus, Jesus is, is not saying something um, just sort of semi-metaphorical when we think of a cross where it's like, say, take up your cross like here. And we get to just walk forward with it and put in a little stand or wear it around our neck or whatever. No, this is a real thing that's, daily 
aspect of life as you walk down the road and there's people executed on the side of the road as a warning to you that indeed Caesar is God and Caesar is in control and Caesar is power and you're not. It's meant to be uh, control. In some ways, it's meant to bring hopelessness to the lives of the people. And Jesus now says, it's in this, this willingness to suffer, this willingness to take up your cross. It's in this willingness that you have hope. For they have no control of you, for God is in control. God has come to bring the intense healing and restoration, and not in the way that you think. In many ways, this isn't unlike the passage from James, where James says, don't, don't presume to be a teacher. Don't want to be a teacher, because you'll get judged more harshly, which is, like, wait, I want to be a teacher, because I want to be up front, and I want everybody to see me, right? I mean, this is, this is the, whole, the whole thing. And in some ways, James just says, no, this isn't what what you're you should be you should be after. You should be seeking just the things of God, and he, obviously he goes on to talk about the tongue, but it, they're all sort of wrapped together. These these ideas of of what it is to be followers of the living God, what it is to for Jesus to come as the Messiah, who's come to to turn everything upside down, right? The kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of God coming forth into the world isn't to overthrow Rome and put Rome in its place. It's to overthrow evil and sin and death. And restoring the temple, as we find out later, in in Mark's gospel, as, as Jesus goes and, and overturns tables, isn't about making sure that the Sadducees are, are doing everything properly or, or you can afford the temple sacrifices. It's now that the Spirit of God will reside in you, that Jesus becomes the temple. The Spirit of God is wherever you are. The temple becomes us. And no longer is justice just about the Gentiles being put in their place and Israel being lifted up. Now it's about the healing and grace and light and power that's come into the world to bring forth hope to the least. Peter says, that isn't what it's supposed to be at all, right? I mean, this is not, is this what we signed up for? And you will see next week it's the same sort of thing when, when you know, they're still arguing about who's the greatest. Like Jesus is like, oh, you know, missing the point, still here. But they're on their way, right? They're on their way as Jesus begins to continue to basically say, this God who's here is, is, not the, is not the God you seek to follow. This God, Caesar, 
There's a new kingdom. That's why in Matthew's gospel, even though we argue for a long time, um, when Jesus says after Peter's confession, upon this rock, right, you'll never be overthrown. There's, there's many that think the rock is Peter. There's many that think the rock is confession. There's many that think that rock is actually the temple that Jesus is pointing to in Caesarea Philippi, like a specific rock. Upon that rock, that rock will be overthrown. You know, cannot be overthrown, cannot be overcome. It'll take over. Uh, the kingdom of God will crush that that rock. So, um, for us, as we live into this passage, you know, the, I think the same. We have to we have to be honest with ourselves at times and and say, do we want to to, to follow the, the Jesus who's come? to bring forth the new kingdom into the world? Do we want to follow the Jesus who's looking to bring forth life and crush um, systems of evil and and uh, build people up and touch the untouchable? Do we want to follow Jesus who, who looks into the eyes of those who are who are hurting and in pain, as well as overturning the tables of the money changers. Do we want to follow this Jesus who's, when you compare, you know, we sort of have to get our mind out of the prophets um, of that time, of, of, of Jesus being the, the meek and mild. We have Jesus who says, let the little children come to me, and it's so sweet. Um, when they say, you're Elijah, John the Baptist, we know how John the Baptist ended up. He didn't end up real good, right? He ended up with his head on a platter. Um, John the Baptist is a threat to the powers that be. Jesus is a threat to the powers that be. It's why Jesus says, don't say anything. Because in order for this kingdom to come forth, it is. But do we want to follow this, this Jesus or do we like to follow the meek, mild, gentle Jesus who says, hey, you're so sweet. I think it's time for the church to, to truly seek after that Jesus who, who calls us to more, to go deeper and to take up our cross and follow not the Jesus that we think is going to bring us wealth and prosperity, but the Jesus who says, come after me, that you can bring God's healing into the world, that you can be an agent of God's mercy and justice and healing because my spirit lives in you. This is the Jesus that we're invited to take up our cross and to follow. And may we come and do this and seek ways in which St. Matthias and, and all of us can, can empower um, the people of God who don't even know the people of God because they have only a distorted view like shadows and trees of who Jesus really is, of what God really is. May we help them see clearly the real Jesus who brings forth life and hope and power.
Amen.